We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Well, I think Americans generally view America as essentially isolationist, certainly at its birth, uh, generally throughout its early history, but even beyond minding its own business unless someone comes in and attacks it or poses some threat, and then we go out and deal with it. And, and it is mostly myth. Um, if you think about going back even to the time of the Puritans, uh, America has been an expansionist nation uh, really for 400 years. I think that's a reality that Americans sometimes uh, forget. John Quincy Adams, uh, he said that uh, America was destined by the finger of God uh, to be, to belong to the American people, that North America, uh, the whole continent, was destined to belong to Americans. We should be willing to use our military to advance our ideals. I mean, these days that's conceived of as a radical idea and only a very small fringe of Americans could possibly believe that, but that is a mainstream traditional American view. There was a lot more continuity than people want to remember, I think, between the Clinton administration's approach to Iraq and the Bush administration's approach to Iraq. So long as Saddam remains in power, he threatens the well-being of his people, the peace of his region, the security of the world. Working for the elimination of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction capability, if they really believe that there are no circumstances under which we would act alone, they are sadly mistaken. You write in the New Republic that uh, from 89 to 2003, 1989 to 2003, a 14-year period spanning three very different presidencies, the U.S. deployed large numbers of troops or engaged in extended campaigns of aerial bombing and missile attacks on nine different occasions. That's an average of one significant military intervention every 19 months. That's the greater, greatest frequency of any time in our history. Yeah. We think of ourselves as a peace-loving people, and, but at the same time, uh, we have a strong martial tradition. And for a nation that, uh, that does love peace, that frequency uh, of intervention after the end of the Cold War uh, is a pretty dramatic sign that throughout our history, whether from the Revolution and the Civil War, First World War, Second World War, Americans have always believed uh, that military power, uh, though to be used as a last resort, we always say, uh, is nevertheless an essential element of foreign policy. And I think we're, we're, we're still like that today. We're not an unselfish nation. Uh, we also take actions that are in our self-interest, and sometimes uh, we blend the two. We blend the, our idealistic motives and our self-interested motives. Um, that we are, you know, we're a nation of human beings, and human beings are selfish people. But Machiavelli understood in, in a good way, rather than the sort of, you know, terrible way that he's usually described, which is that it may be necessary for powerful nations sometimes to violate even its own rules in order to further uh, the order. This is the most upsetting thing that Americans can possibly hear, and yet we've done it routinely. Uh, I would say, to characterize this administration's foreign policy coming in, uh, it was not Bush. I dare say we will find more continuity, and I know this is a horrific thing to say, uh, between George W. Bush's foreign policies and some, and, and also in terms of dealing with terror, and some of Barack Obama's policies. Uh, continuity is in American foreign policy it generally greater than discontinuity. 
um, presidents are not as different from one another as they think they're going to be, and sometimes as, as, as they certainly not the way they sound in campaigns. And in the hope of upsetting all of you in one way or another, it is not uh, dramatically different. Welcome back, everyone, to The Truth Perspective. This is the July 10th, 2016 edition. And in the studio today, uh, we have our regular Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. And I'll be your host for today, Harrison Cayley. And joining us today is Robbie Martin, who has just released part three of his documentary film, A Very Heavy Agenda. Robbie is a journalist for Media Roots, and he co-hosts Media Roots Radio with his sister, Abby Martin. He also composes music under the name Fluorescent Grey, which you can hear featured in A Very Heavy Agenda, as well as on Abby's show, The Empire, Fire, the Empire Files on Telesur. Now, the film we'll be discussing today, A Very Heavy Agenda, is available in three parts, running a total of something like seven and a half hours. And if I could sum it up in just a few words, I'd call it a history, analysis, and condemnation of the neoconservatives. And it's mostly told in their own words, culled from TV appearances and talks given by some of their most prominent members, and also from news coverage of events that they have shaped or influenced over the past 20, 20 years or so. And, I mean, that's debatable. We could go back further when we talk about these guys' influence. Now, Robbie has done an amazing job putting all this material together, and we highly recommend that you check out the film. It's available on Vimeo, and you can also order DVD copies on his website. I believe the, um, the, all three parts will be available in a set, um, I think on July 20th, but we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. And um, that will, that's available on his website, veryheavyagenda.blogspot.com, and links are in the show description. So, Robbie, welcome to the show. We're really excited to talk to you about your film. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Robbie, before I um, start with my first question here, I just want to add to what Harrison was saying about this, uh, this series. Uh, it is as well-made and compelling and horrifying as any documentary uh, I think I've seen in the past 10 or 15 years on the subject of um, politics or, uh, or um, social movements or uh, anything of that sort. Uh, it, it's artistic, uh, it's compelling, um, and I just want to recommend that everybody who's listening to this show uh, who has any kind of interest in the reality, the political reality of the USA Today uh, go out and, and watch these films. And having said that, I was wondering, Robbie, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, how it was you decided, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make a film about these neocons and really get to the heart of, of what's going on here. Well, I guess it, it all started um, back when my sister Abby, um, who some of your listeners might be familiar with had her show breaking the set on Russia today. Um, and her show, uh, was already, I think it was about a year and a half running already when I went and visited her for a week. Um, I kind of got a chance to hang out around the RT studios and, 
and uh, help her write some episodes. So that was a, a really fun experience for me. And I sort of, I guess in a way, I sort of took it for granted because I didn't realize at the time, because I wasn't following it closely enough, that the Ukrainian government was um, like on the edge of basically stepping down because of the, the Euromaidan protests and, and what was happening over there. And this was sort of happening in the background while I was there at her, at her studios. And her and I were talking about it privately, like, God damn, this is crazy that this is happening. Um, you know, while you're here at RT, you know, eventually this is going to get to a point where you're going to have to talk about it on your show and, and what's, what's going to be your take on it. Because like, you know, it's so confusing. We were, we were having trouble figuring out what was going on in real time and kind of just trying to figure out exactly how to, you know, analyze it and then sort of broadcast that to her audience. Um, and then, and then when I left, um, that's really when the Ukrainian situation boiled over. And then we were talking on the phone about it, um, while she was in DC. And then she finally decided, um, that she was going to use sort of the last monologue on her show to detach herself from what she felt was, uh, Russian aggression, but also American meddling in Ukraine. And she was sort of trying to say, you know, the media overall right now is being, uh, a little bit dishonest. Like you're not getting the full story. Um, she wasn't throwing the network RT under the bus. You know, some people accused her of that. Um, but it was more like she saw some things that RT was putting out at that time that were questionable to her. But it, the larger point was that the entire Western media narrative at the time was starting to ramp up anti-Russian coverage. And, um, and that was something that she was also criticizing. Um, and then, of course, that in and of itself, her coming out and doing this monologue on RT became a news story mm-hmm. here in the Western press. And what happened was uh, the Western press almost started hailing her as this anti-Russian hero who came out on her show and spoke out against Russia. Um, but I think that they they jumped the gun on doing that because they didn't realize what her actual politics were. They hadn't seen her show before that. Um, when in fact, you know, her show is extremely anti-U.S. imperialism, anti-U.S. militarism. One of the most aggressive shows ever on American television from the, uh, presenting that perspective, arguably. Um, so, you know, the press ran with this story, and then very quickly it started to become, oh, she's actually a truther. Uh, these statements are now questionable because she has these, uh, you know, uh, controversial views about Israel and about the U.S.'s role in, in foreign policy and stuff. So to make a long story short, I know I've gone a little bit long with this explanation, but um, it's important to tell the backstory because what happened right after that was very interesting because a fellow from this neoconservative think tank named the Foreign Policy Initiative – sort of took all these things, these negative things that were starting to be churned about Abby in the press and sort of presented them all in this package on a TV spot on MSNBC. And he went on MSNBC uh, two nights after Abby made this statement about Crimea and Ukraine and basically uh, just tried to destroy Abby's reputation. Um, you know, she's a, she's a kook. She's a conspiracy theorist. Don't listen to her. You know, all, all that kind of stuff. And then he ended it by saying that 
her stance on RT was actually a Russian false flag and that it was all stage managed and that somehow her boss, you know, was in on this with her and it was done to make it seem like RT reporters weren't controlled by the Kremlin. So he developed basically this neocon conspiracy theory about my sister being like a some kind of act, actor, like she wasn't really making a stand and that it was all fake. Um, and then a day after he did this, uh, one of Abby's colleagues on RT named Liz Wall actually resigned live on air claiming that she could no longer be a puppet of Putin and no longer be part of a network that, quote, whitewashes Putin. Abby and I were blown away by this. Uh, Abby knew Liz Wall well enough to know that she didn't have any of those feelings towards the network, that it sounded totally phony mm -hmm. when it happened. Um, she had, like, other issues with the network. She wasn't getting paid enough. Um, that was something that she w had talked about Abby with uh, about um, you know with Abby before, but nothing along uh, along the lines of this is a propaganda network. I don't want to work here anymore. So it was a huge shock to us when that happened. Um, and then just what we thought was a coincidence, but a very strange coincidence, but also too weird to be a coincidence, was that this same fellow from the Foreign Policy Initiative. Uh, who, who had smeared Abby on MSNBC a day earlier was the one to get the exclusive first interview with Liz Wall, uh, who had just resigned on RT. And Two he was sort ago. of, yeah. And he was sort of buddying up with her and, and, and sort of, um, you know, helping her get all these media spots and stuff. And it was almost like he was her, he was almost like her representative in this sort of weird, 24-hour window when Liz Law was getting, you know, asked to go on CNN and all these other media outlets. But uh, what we found out um, just uh, actually weeks later, uh, we didn't realize how, you know, how coordinated this actually was. We just had a feeling that it was. We couldn't prove it. But um, in this uh, article by M Max Blumenthal and Rania Kalik that came out uh, weeks later, it actually – shows that the foreign policy initiative itself, the think tank's Twitter account was tweeting uh, uh, on their Twitter account, telling people to tune in to Russia today because something big was about to happen. And they kept tweeting this like leading up to the actual moment when Liz Wall resigned live on air. Um, so we just thought that was incredibly bizarre and it was made even more bizarre uh, when we realized what the foreign policy initiative was and the foreign policy initiative is of course, you know, uh, from the movie, you'll learn from a very heavy agenda that it is a rebranded reopened version of the infamous think tank, the project for the new American century, which, um, was something that I had always known about. Uh, I just assumed it was gone. All the people from it had sort of, you know, gone into the shadows and, and, and disappeared but uh, what I learned from this experience was that, no, it's it's very much alive. It just has a new name, similar to how when Blackwater closed, they reopened as Z. They closed that name down and re and then, you know, rebranded as Academy. It's the same thing. Um, you know, this this organization, the Project for the New American Century, uh, its reputation was so tarnished that they had to close it down and and uh, and rebrand it, essentially. Um and that's kind of what got me started on making this movie is it was almost like the narrative about what the foreign policy initiative was, was something they learned after mm -hmm. this experience and, and sort of what it was doing, but just the awareness of it 
and and that it's still around and very much alive and it's actually almost was waging a information war against Russia today um was just so fascinating to me that I had to keep digging into it and that's kind of the movie came out of just sort of that research project which I did not know at first was going to turn into a movie it was just kind of like a, a, a just a long-term research project well, and I, I've got to, I've got to thank you for for doing the work to actually make this movie because, like I said, it's seven and a half hours, largely or mostly, um, you know, previously existing footage from TV and conferences like C-SPAN, and I just can't imagine how many hours of these guys you must have had to watch to put this thing together, and that's a. You know, it's it's not a job I think many of us would want to do. Listening to Bill Crystal and Bob Kagan talk for hours and hours and hours, <laughs> but so so thanks for doing that for us. No, you're welcome. <laughs> but you you made a you made a couple of good points that I think apply to a lot of people, myself included. Like I I was you know, totally aware of PNAC and the neocons, but for like at least since Obama came to power, I might have had some kind of vague idea that some of them were still connected in certain ways. I mean, I knew that um, Victoria Newland was married to a neocon, but Bob Kagan, I mean, I didn't know a lot about him. I just kind of, uh, you know, it was just this, this vague kind of idea floating under the surface that I never really looked into or took the time to look into. But then when you actually look at it, you find that it's the exact same people who, uh, who, are in, who were involved and started PNAC and who are now at this FPI, Foreign Policy Initiative, and they they are just as just as enmeshed in the in American foreign policy as they were back then. And when you start looking at the the course of American foreign policy in the last, well, especially the last uh, like four or five years in Syria and Ukraine and against Russia, it's just it, it kind of puts a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of the puzzle pieces together. Um, because uh, in, in in the documentary you say something like um, you realize that the the purpose of this neoconservative movement it hasn't necessarily been against any like individual Middle Eastern country it hasn't even been primarily and exclusively for the benefit of Israel but it has been directed and it looks like everything is directed against Russia. What is that? A am I taking home the right message from the, from your documentary with that? Yeah, I think to a certain extent that that's true, that geopolitically speaking, and from the very beginning of PNAC, they always saw um, the collapse of the Soviet Union not as a as a chance to sort of, you know, okay, let's let's step back. Let's let's sort of rethink our role in the world now. They always saw that event as an opportunity to actually ramp up our military and use that void to reassert our dominance over the entire planet. So I think, you know, what you were saying about, you know, it's not about any particular Middle Eastern country. It may be that it's strategic, you know, strategic opportunities. They've taken out certain countries to further a larger goal, which may be to sort of box in Russia. And that's kind of, I mean, that's the perspective I was coming from when I first started making this is I thought, oh, of course they would you know, they would sort of see Russia as this potentially looming threat. And it's not necessarily about the war on terror for them. It's more just a geopolitical chessboard. But now I almost see it more of as a symbolic thing that it might, it really might not even be about some kind of, you know, 
like actual seen through some kind of war with Russia. Hmm. I don't think that these people, I mean, I do think they're insane and I do think that they're, you know, sociopaths, some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, they don't operate on the same emotional wavelength that many normal human beings do clearly, but I don't think that they want, they actually like want nuclear war and a nuclear winter. They're not, they're not that insane. I think that their insanity is more in their egotism where they actually think that if we assert ourselves constantly at all these opportunities and we assert ourselves in a dominance posture against Russia, that that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about what we eventually end up doing with Russia if we end up, you know, waging a hot war with them or not. It's more to them. It's it's almost like they're very short sighted. They care more about the posturing and the symbolism behind that because if America loses that symbolic posture, then that's when the neocons see their sort of their whole goal, you know, moving away or, or not or becoming less clear because I think. You know, someone asked me this last night. I I screened the movie for a small group of people last night, and someone was like, well, what is the goal? You know, is it just to sell weapons? They were kind of like going through all the different possible goals, and I was almost trying to to say, well, it's not really a goal in that sense. It's more like they want they want to maintain a certain kind of status quo, and for these neocons, the status quo is American dominance. Mm-hmm. And whether that be symbolic, I think symbolically that's the most important. If practical things we're doing around the world create a symbolic American dominance. That's good for them. You know, but even if America's economy is in shambles or, you know, people hate us all around the world to the neocons, some catalyzing event, you know, like the new Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. that they describe will make everything flip uh, 180 uh, in, in sort of the public consciousness and allow um, that symbolic representation of this American dominance come forth very easily. And so they, and I think that's a really key component to the neocons also is they wait for these opportunities, uh, to come around. Um, and, you know, and, uh, and a lot of people, I think because they're so good at tapping into these opportunities, a lot of people have rightfully suspected that maybe even they have created some of these opportunities. So, um, I mean, to just to, to make a, uh, the, your Russian answer or your Russian question a little more, I'll give you a more simple answer. I think it's mostly about the symbolism of keeping dominance over Russia, and I think Putin as well is is um, gaining in his own country from the same mindset. Not not that he believes that Russia should spread its democracy over the world. I mean, in a lot of ways, Putin is actually in my mind, less authoritarian than some of these neocons because he just wants this sort of authoritarian mindset inside Russia on a domestic level. Um, the neocons want it globally. But I think Putin also benefits from um, uh, sort of this symbolic, like he's taking a, a sort of more aggressive posture towards America and that gains him points in his country. It creates more of a strong nationalistic identity over there. Um, and I think it does a similar thing here. And that's part of why Trump, I think, is doing so well. Um, but then he's also angering the neocons because he's only using the nationalistic identity and not the sort of quasi-humanitarian, you know, uh, we need to wage war in the Middle East kind of thing. Well, uh, you just mentioned a little bit about the uh, new Pearl Harbor idea, which uh, Donald Kagan, one of the one of the family members of the this incredibly uh, 
concentrated uh, evil group of Kagans um, <laughs> that he's a part of. In any case, um, he, he mentioned in Rebuilding America's Defenses, if I have that correct, uh, that um, you know, having a, a new Pearl Harbor would facilitate what the U.S. needs to do uh, in order to um, reassert its primacy, I guess you would say. And, uh, and you just mentioned, Robbie, a little bit about how the neocons are kind of waiting around uh, for the right type of event to occur to kind of push this agenda forward of American primacy. Um, and lo and behold, not a few years after, you know, he comes out with the statement, uh, you know, we have the events of 9-11 occurring. Um, we know from a lot of material that uh, these events were quite probably manufactured by uh, elements of uh, the U.S. government, intelligence agencies uh, in Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. And um, given the fact that, the, that this Kagan cabal and other neocons are so closely uh, aligned with these think tanks that you mention in your film, who are uh, or that are supported by um, basically the military-industrial complex and the fact that they're kind of extensions of the military-industrial complex. Um, is it is it just coincidence? Is it uh, is it a confluence of really nasty events and and um, and propaganda that these people are putting out? You know, to what extent? I guess my question is: to what extent do you think? Uh, they are actually responsible for for helping to bring about the events of 9/11. Well, that's a that's a really good question, and it's it's really difficult to to give you an accurate answer, especially with 9/11, because I mean, you know, and I've dabbled in all sorts of areas with 9/11. I, I've looked at a lot of the the 9/11 conspiracy stuff. Um, I've done a lot of my own research on different facets of 9-11. Um, and it wasn't until I made this uh, that I realized how many neocons seem to have like prescient, almost like prescience about the 9-11 attacks. It wasn't, it wasn't just fears that a terrorist could attack us eventually. It was very detailed sort of, you know, and within a very small time window, relatively speaking, a couple of years, um, they were acting like, you know, if we don't do something now, something's going to happen. And there was variation to this. I mean, Don Kagan was taking more of an alarmist approach. Like, we need to do something, you know, like there could be some kind of catastrophic event that could happen. Other people like Philip Zelikow, um, who actually was one of the main, you know, people responsible for the 9-11 Commission report, were writing terrorism reports in the 90s saying that, there's going to be some kind of transformative event like a, like Pearl Harbor where there will be a before uh, period of history and an after uh, period of history. And then a couple of years later, 9-11 happened. So there was – I mean there was a, a few different examples of this that I couldn't even put in my film just because it would have added more characters to the story. It would have made it a, a little more confusing and perhaps a little more creepy with less opportunity to answer some of those more, you know uh, – I guess, creepy questions. But I, I think, I guess what I try to do with my film more is move people's attention towards another attack, um, which occurred right after 9-11, uh, which only killed uh, uh, five people, but I think is a much more uh, direct 
simple example of sort of that bizarre gray area where it gets blurry, where you really can't tell at a certain point if if this was just them taking advantage of an amazing opportunity or if some of these neocons who were connected to different power factions in the U.S. government actually brought forth that event. Um, and and the only reason I, I, try, I say move people's attention towards that is because um, there's more direct, I think, uh, dots you can connect to show that the people who had the opportunity, who had the means, were also some of the same people who were going on the press and saying that Iraq did 9-11, mm-hmm. putting out some of the earliest Iraq war propaganda, and then also putting out some of the earliest sort of hints that the next attack was going to be a, a biological attack. I mean, you you even hear Don Kagan sort of it's almost as if he's greedy already on 912, realizing that, you know, there needs to be more or something. Like, there needs to be, like, almost like people won't go along with this. If it's a one shot, you know, people will just go about their, their, their daily lives after this. But what would have happened if the terrorists had anthrax on that plane? Um, and, and he's sort of implying, you know, this, and he's sort of implying, uh, the future, mindset where that terrorist attacks would keep happening. We were sort of locked into this mindset after 9-11, not just that, oh my God, these terrorists did this horrible attack in New York, but America was in a state of panic where we believed that terrorist attacks were going to be a regular occurrence uh, after the anthrax attacks. Um, and I think it's really important for people to remember how much that locked us into that mindset. Because I really believe, just like, and I would agree with Don Kagan in this instance, one of the rare instances that I would, is that he's right that 9-11 would have just been a one-shot and people probably would have been able to maybe go about their lives a little more. The war on terror would not have become such a concrete narrative. Um, the world would not have flipped upside down quite like it did um, if it not had, you know, if it wasn't for that second attack. Um, so... And, and I, and I think that, you know, in my film, and I don't want to, you know, give too much away about like the ways that I sort of try to connect these dots, but, um, there's evidence that the CIA might have had a hand in actually, um, sending out that anthrax. Um, and there's also, uh, evidence that I couldn't put in my movie again because it's just too much story to insert, but it's actually going to be on a bonus DVD. Uh, on the in the box set, there's going to be 30 minutes of additional material, and in that uh, 30 minute uh, a bonus DVD, I'm going to try to, um, you know, I'm, go- I'm I've attempted to tell a part of the Anthrax story um, that involved James Woolsey, um, one of the sort of side characters that I throw in at the end, who who was the former CIA director under Bill Clinton, who was hired by Bush. And Paul Wolfowitz to sort of do this behind the scenes, quote unquote, intelligence gathering to prove that Saddam did the anthrax mailings. But what you find out is in June of 2001, he was doing a privatized, not officially, you know, government funded. It was all privatized, um, a bioterror drill called Operation Dark Winter. Um, that Tom Clancy actually ended up making a video game about much later on. I think it came out for like Xbox uh, 360 a few years ago. And the reason this terror drill is so fascinating 
is because it happened in June of 2001. So this is before 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. And it involves a script, like a movie script, um, about what would happen if Islamic terrorists uh, and uh, launched a smallpox biological weapons attack in the United States. And, you know, when you first read the synopsis for it, it maybe doesn't seem that similar to anthrax. But when you actually keep reading this script and all the uh, the sort of game fantasy role playing stuff that went around uh, you know around this simulation and it's all written you could find it all online still in archives um, it actually has fake newscasts that were filmed for this drill where the news reporters are talking about how there's going to be martial law um, how the ter- how we can't stop these terrorists from killing you know hundreds of thousands of more people the hospitals are overloaded the v- smallpox vaccines have expended we don't have any more left and then they end the broadcast by saying that we believe that the smallpox came from a, a, a terrorist, delivered it from Afghanistan based on smallpox made in Iraq's biological weapons <laughs> program. <laughs> but that's not the, uh, the craziest part. To me, the craziest part is actually in the script, a terrorist sends letters to a bunch of media organizations saying that next we will have anthrax, uh, and one of those actors in this simulation was Judith Miller uh, playing a reporter in the simulation, uh, basically playing herself. Um, and on October 5th, um, I, I'm sorry, October 3rd, two days before the first anthrax letter hit and, and Robert Stevens was infected with anthrax, she releases a book called Germs uh, with a co-author. I don't remember her name. Judith Miller's book hits the shelves called Germs, all about uh, the potential for a biological terrorist attack and, and, and that anthrax um, would come from a place like Iraq. Like if it was anthrax, that's where it would come from. Now keep in mind, two days later, uh, that's when the first biological a terrorist attack happened in this country, which was the first anthrax uh, going, through, you know, going through the mail. And then that's when we started to see little bits and pieces of propaganda inserted all over the news that it was Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program that sent this out. So to me, that is the perfect psychological uh, sort of thing to implant into people's minds that, you know, that this is the pivot to, to Iraq. This is why we need to pivot from Afghanistan and bin Laden to Iraq. Because without anthrax, I don't think they would have been able to do that uh, as successfully as they did. Mm-hmm. They needed that. You know, even though they tried to say that Saddam had nuclear weapons, um, that he had chemical weapons, none of those things that happened here, you know, a nuke didn't go off here, a chemical weapons attack didn't happen here. It was an anthrax attack that happened here. That's what we remembered. That's what hit us on a visceral sort of level. Um, and, you know, while we were in this heightened emotional state after 9-11, um, and I think just that the neocons, um, you know, were so predictive of it and taking advantage of it so hard that uh, it really does raise the question how many of them knew that it was coming, you know, had foreknowledge of it. And if it came from within the U.S. government bioweapons lab, then that doesn't make sense from an, an intelligence point of view. You know, that almost re- that almost requires something beyond just foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't answer exactly, you know, 
what that means. I can only speculate on that. Um, and I try to go as far as possible with it, you know, in a very heavy agenda. And I'll, and, uh, you know, in this bonus DVD, I'll go a little, uh, you know, a little harder on that and people can, can make up their minds on what they think. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole anthrax story just, it reeks. I mean, we had Graham McQueen on the show a few months ago to talk about his book, uh, the, what was it called? The Anthrax Deception mm-hmm. or something like that. It's a really good book, yeah. yeah. It's great. And just one of the things that, that he, he makes so clear in that book is, is just how interlocking all of those elements were. Like before 9-11, you had the, the, the PNAC guys writing all these papers where they're linking, um, they're linking Iraq to, to Al-Qaeda and, then they're talking about anthrax before there's even any anthrax attacks or even like the public threat. No one knows that this is going on, but it's it's getting seeded in the media. And you have these media memes like, um, um, what was the one? The the unthinkable. Like, will the unthinkable happen? And everyone's talking about this. And then and then the people in the White House are on Cipro. And then these attacks happen, and and everything falls together. You have all the pieces of the story that that are coming together, like Iraq and the, and the anthrax. And you had the the alleged meeting between Mohammed Atta and the Iraqi intelligence guy in Germany, yeah. which which happened to come from you know if you read the news reports, it's the Israeli intel that provide the, this information to the Western media. All these pieces together, and then what? A few years later, we find out. Oh no, it wasn't uh, wasn't radical Muslims at all. It was this uh, Bruce Ivins uh, American scientist, which is uh, another. Uh, total uh totally false story like that it just falls apart when you look at it but it's just and it it's so frustrating and ironic at the same time that the whole narrative was essential to getting america into this state of perpetual endless war and yet the entire narrative has fallen apart in retrospect and it's it's like well what the hell happened it's like something just something really messed up just happened over you know in that entire period. No, I mean it's it's to me it's one of the most crucial things to understand where we're at now. And and I think Graham does a wonderful job of of laying out basically how it it was a multi-stage attack. Um psychological, you know, if you just want to look at it on a psychological level, it needed to be 9/11 and then the anthrax attacks to get the Patriot Act passed, mm-hmm. they get, you know, the, the, the pivot to Iraq, they get this idea that other state actors, we need to start taking them out. Um, it, and yeah, I mean, it's, it, it hit us on such a, I guess I keep bringing it to this idea that it hit us on such a deep emotional level that I think that it is really hard for people to even re- just remember the anthrax attacks because 9-11 totally overshadowed it. Um, So many more people died. But when you really go back and see those two events happening and you kind of chronologically try to re-remember what that was like to experience that, I think you you almost start to get like a – it's almost like kind of like a flashback kind of experience. You you start to – some of those emotions from that time period – you remember them and you remember how intense they were and how they allowed sort of, you know, the human brain to, to not like remember and, and think about things in a critical and clear way. 
Um, it, it was, it was a confusing time. I mean, I remember at the time being confused about why we were going to Saddam Hussein, but you know, all the evidence sort of showing that trail of how we got there is there in retrospect. You can go back and see it, but it was hard to see how, what, the, it was hard to see, I guess, the breadcrumbs that they were putting out for us. It was just like we just felt ourselves being moved there. Um, but when you see those breadcrumbs and you're able to sort of reverse engineer it, you realize that it wasn't just the Bush administration to being cowboy style and, 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 you know, running roughshod and acting, you know, sort of really authoritarian. It was that they had, must have had a coordinated network of reporters and neocons outside the administration coordinating with people on the inside, putting out this propaganda. Um, because it was too sophisticated. It wasn't just, you know, Judith Miller. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't just Judith Miller and Valerie Plame and all, and sort of that, you know, that, that whole story about the, 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 um, yellow cake in Nigeria. It was so many other things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's going to be something that I hope more people pay attention to in the future because as the way I see it now is it a very, it's a very ignored topic, um, even within the truth movement. And uh, that's why I really appreciate what Graham has done because uh, it's just it – need people more people need to look at it and more people need to be writing about it. Well, one of the things, Robbie, that I think your uh, film kind of brings across in a very strong way, uh, as I was watching this, I was thinking, you know, these guys, these neocons, whether – they work for think tanks or uh, extensions of the government. They are, um, to some large degree, because they're so educated and um, and well spoken, uh, they're spellbinders. Um, and people listen to them. Uh, they put out these uh, these well reasoned arguments. They sound very reasonable. Uh, if you have no idea about what they're talking about. Um, actually, if you don't know what the facts are, then, then I could see someone uh, kind of buying into uh, their, their whole um, kind of ideas. And um, it reminded me of a book that we often cite here on the show called Political Ponderology by a psychologist named Andrew Lobachowski. And uh, the point of his book is that... Um, Basically, and this gets back to another point you were making a little earlier, uh, these people, many of them, are sociopaths. And like you were saying, they don't have uh, the same kind of emotional uh, inner life that, uh, that, that many normal, healthy, well-adjusted people uh, would have. And, um, you know, the, this, this idea that they can, uh, that they're very successful at convincing people of their points of view who who have no idea that uh, psychopaths can be so well-dressed and so soft-spoken and articulate uh, is, is largely one of the reasons why they're so successful in propagating their foreign policy messages in, in Washington and, and putting them out in newspapers and, and, and having people believe the big lie in such a big way. So I wonder if, you'd, if you had any thoughts on the fact that these individuals are um, or if you can elaborate a little bit on how you feel about the idea that they're that they're psychopaths. Yeah, I mean that book sounds really interesting. By the way, I need to check that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
I, I don't, I hesitate. I mean, I definitely, I said, I definitely said some of them have socio, sociopathic and sort of psychopathic traits earlier on in this discussion. And, and I hesitate a little bit to, you know, diagnose them just because I, I don't, you know, I don't really know, um, exactly what mental illness you would, you, you would sort of pin on some of these people based on their pathology. I think with some of them that you could pretty easily say that they have narcissistic personality disorder. Some of them, um, Michael Ledeen would be a good example because of his just, you know, the way that he is gleefully uttering some of those statements about American exceptionalism. Um, it makes me think that he really buys into all of it. Um, uh, but it's, I think that, uh, I don't know if you use the word charisma, but I do definitely think some of them need to be, or, or they are uh, very charismatic people. And that's sort of, um, required to be able to get their message across. Um, especially when you see people like Robert Kagan, um, not as much Bill Crystal, you know, people, he's more of a mockery these days, but I think Robert Kagan is, um, he's very charismatic and very successful at making himself seem, um, nonpartisan and, and like, like, uh, like that he actually has liberal beliefs. Um, and I don't know if that's something that he's strategized over time, you know, and he's honed this ability to sort of be able to be likable by both sides. Um, but I don't know. I mean, on, and then on a whole other level, you, you have to wonder if, um, you know, if some of these people are completely detached from uh, empathy and if some of them, you know, would have to be sociopaths to be able to so callously, uh, you know, send American troops into harm's way and sort of look at it almost like, you know, these cold math equations and sort of strategic, um, you know, gains we could make rather than like human beings, uh, you know, being sent into war. Um, and, and it's, and it's fascinating to me because then you have someone like Kim and Fred Kagan who are actually in a war zone for a long time doing some of this sort of think tank work, consulting for generals. So it really makes me wonder, you know, being over in a war zone for that long, I mean, at a certain point, you're going to smell rotting, you know, human bodies. You're going to, you're going to see people, you're probably going to see dead people at some point. So what was their uh, sort of uh, take on that? And, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, were they just sort of, I, it just makes me wonder if there's something that they have in them, you know, that like emergency room doctors have, you know, to be able to, to not be sort of emotionally invested or, or too affected by, you know, watching, you know, a gunshot victim and trying to operate on them. Um, that would be maybe a positive way to describe it, um, that they could be so analytical and cold. But I definitely think it's something, it's something a lot more disturbing than that with a lot of these people. Yeah. And I think, I I think that's a, it's a pretty good example, the emergency room one from one perspective, just to kind of get the part of the mindset. But I think the thing that kind of pushes them over the edge and uh, from the doctor analogy to the actual psychopath one is that if you take a doctor, for example, they have to overcome a certain revulsion to 
to gore in essence in order to save someone like there's a there's a value or a a a higher purpose at play that is you know one could argue just good in general to help people whereas yeah. it doesn't seem like there's any of that going on um with these with these politicians and think tankers in, in in the neocon movement where it seems like that's any kind of liberal values that they um, profess in public are just a cover because what they're actually doing is they they have that total detachment from any kind of human connection and emotion but at the same time it is geared towards just military domination killing thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and ma- and getting like filthy rich off of it and it's like when you when you put all the all those pieces together it um i, I really think it just it just screams psychopath but yeah you Check out the book because uh, Ponderology because uh, he gets into it in, in a lot of detail. But I wanted to, to just comment on, on Elan's original question on that topic and just give some of my thoughts and feelings while watching the video, while watching the film. Because you have um, just extensive footage from like the past, what, 30 years of a lot of these people. So from Donald Kagan and Rob Kagan in the 80s and in the, in the 90s, and then all the other ones like Michael Ledeen and Richard Pearl, the new guys like Jamie Kerchick and Eli Lake, and when you and of course Bill Crystal. Now I, I had a few different reactions while watching these guys, and one is that I found that if I didn't pay attention to what Bill Crystal was saying, I was like, well, this guy just seems really happy all the time. Like he seems like a fun guy. And uh, and then when you actually listen to what he's saying, it's like there's this cognitive dissonance going on where you, where he's saying these just insane things. And it, it, I just found it to be a really disturbing experience to be watching this guy. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, like I said, on the one hand, he just seems like this jolly guy who's always happy, but there's just something underneath the surface there. And like I said, in what he's explicitly saying and the things that he's explicitly endorsing that is just super disturbing. And then you have a guy like Bob Kagan and even Richard Pearl to an extent where they, they're, they've got this kind of quiet, soothing, soft voice and they speak just they sound so reasonable when they're speaking and like uh like the clips that we played at the at the beginning of the show are from bob kagan where he's talking about um the american tradition of expansionism and militarism and you think think it's just this great thing until you realize what he's actually talking about in this soft you know academic soothing voice is that he's actually talking about going to other countries raping and pillaging steal their stealing their resources and killing them and that's that. That's that's that great American tradition that Bob Kagan is just um, totally getting behind in order to to further American interests. When you and that's, I think that's one of the great things about your film, Robbie, is that you show these words, but then you also because it's video, because it's a a, a visual format, you're able to splice in and intersperse the, the the actual reality behind what they're saying. So you'll have. You'll have a clip of what they're saying, and then you'll show the reality. You'll show the bombs and the bodies and what's really going on. So um, just right there, I wanted to, to commend you on that because it is a, it's, it's a really different experience when you're, when you're seeing all this in context and you're seeing the juxtaposition. So um, just well, thank you. Yeah, good job on that one. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried a little bit. I mean, in part one, I mean, if you watch most of part one, um, especially the first half, uh, it's almost all sort of ivory tower inside the C-SPAN studio, completely detached from the reality and the, the smells, the sights, the sounds of war, the horrors of war. 
and it's kind of like you know you have it's it, 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 and I, and I almost wanted to emphasize the surreal feeling of that of them being all comfortable in these air conditioned studios talking about this stuff and being all jolly and making jokes and laughing with callers. Um, and then I, I guess as the movie goes on, you start seeing more glimpses of the outside world. And then of course, when part two starts, it's kind of like, well, these are the actual effects on a geopolitical scale, um, that are happening almost right now, kind of in, you know, you know, only from like 2014 to right now, um, that the neocons are doing. So then it kind of goes out of the studio and you start seeing, uh, Sort of the, the, the damaging, you know, almost like the scorched earth trail that they're creating in their wake, uh, <laughs> what their rhetoric is doing. Yeah. And their rhetoric is, is really, uh, it's incredible. I mean, you, you hear them in these talks, you know, espousing the moral interests of the United States as well as the core, uh, national security interests. And they, they frame, uh, you know, this wanton, uh, geopolitical, uh, aggression and destruction around the world and in these kind of sanitized uh you know but but this is in the interest of uh it's not only in the interest of the safety of the united states but in, in we're also helping these people around the world and in, in in uh planning and executing these interventions and um you know it it's it's this uh really well thought out and constructed facade of 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 language that they use to uh, convince people uh, that what they're doing has some, you know, has some merit, uh, and and you you hear it again and again and again, and it's just uh, it, it's fascinating to, but again, also really horrifying to see them, you know, use this language to to uh, lie to people on such a scale. Yeah, um, I mean. It- you know, some of them are definitely better at it than others. And I think what's also scary is that they're all, they're all relatively good at debating. Um, you know, even if they have an opponent, they're arguing the other side. Um, most of the time I feel like neocons are able to win the debate. Um, they stay more calm, collected. They are able to keep their cool, um, and I think that most of the time that is because their opponents are not necessarily attacking their worldview and their framework in which they're operating in. And instead what happens, and I was just talking about this on, a, on another podcast um, with uh, Daniel Wright from Shadowproof about how the neocons are incredibly good at boxing in their opponents. So people who claim to be liberal, for example, um, when uh, – um, oh yeah, so it's sort of like when the or, or, or Obama, the Obama administration uh, announced that their red line for Syria was if Assad used chemical weapons. That was the red line. If he did that, we were going to attack, um, but we weren't going to attack him unless he did that. So then Assad allegedly used chemical weapons against his own people. Um, you know, there's still a lot of questions about that narrative, but I don't want to go into that. I'm just mentioning this story uh, because what happened after that, as Obama was boxed in, uh, the neocons all across D.C. started to get a bunch of liberal interventionists all around D.C. to start to concern troll Obama and be like, well, he hit, the, he crossed the red line, so now you're going to invade, right? 
Um, and sort of that's the direction that it took. And then the neocons are also really good at con- concern trolling people. And one of the most, I'd say one of the most prominent examples of them doing this is you say, you know, well, the Iraq war was, you know, a huge mistake. Um, and, and then a neocon will say, well, you know, we got rid of Saddam. You know, would you rather see him still in power? Mm-hmm. And your response would almost have to be because you've already been boxed in. Well, of course, I'm glad Saddam's gone. So it's like at that point, you almost are letting them win by letting them frame the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you have to do is uh, to win against a neocon, you have to fundamentally uh, go after their actual worldview. Um, that overthrowing dictators in the Middle East is not a good thing. Um, so, you know, and that's a, that's kind of a, a question designed to box you in and trap you. But I mean, the right answer to that is almost like, well, yeah, Saddam being in power would have been better for what's, ha- compared to what's happening now, because we wouldn't have ISIS, wouldn't have, you know, complete chaos in Iraq and Syria. Um, and it's kind of a, you know, it's something you don't want to say, but it's almost like the neocons are hoping you'll err on the side of, you know, you know, sort of like, I guess, just letting them steamroll over you with their framing. Um, and, and I think that's incredibly important too, because liberal interventionists outnumber neocons by a, a huge margin in Washington, D.C. Um, people, you know, most Democrats, I would consider liberal interventionists. Um, so I think neocons rely on sort of that large group of people in Washington, D.C. to go along with their message. And they have to do that sort of by concern trolling, boxing them in by using that humanitarian angle. And that's why the red line Assad gassing his own people narrative was was the one that they tried to push the hardest on because that was their opportunity to try to get liberal interventionists to make the push. That no, you know, Mr. President, like you said you were going to do this. Like we have to save these people now. Um, and, you know, of course, and Obama still didn't go along with it. Um, so in that rare instance, I think Obama was actually resisting to some extent neocon pressure. Um, but what at that point had actually built up to be like liberal interventionist pressure from when his, when his, within his own party. Um, Hillary Clinton said in her own uh, memoirs after she uh, left the Secretary of State position that uh, Obama was the single uh, like he was the last like decision you know maker of of deciding if we were going to go into Syria or not after that red line violation and he decided not to and apparently the entire joint chief of staff and hillary clinton were trying to pressure him to go and she was like very angry and um you know uh upset that obama decided not to go um so i think that's a good example of how the neocons like robert kagan and these people sort of generate enough pressure out there by using liberal rhetoric to get liberals sucked into you know, kind of creating a lot of the pressure for them. Because if it was just the neocons by themselves Mm -hmm. and they didn't have support from liberal interventionists, they wouldn't really be, you know, get, be able to get their message out. I don't think. Well, Robbie, I want to move on to the, the new neocons. So I guess you could call them maybe the next generation for a little bit. And you already mentioned right at the top of the show, when you were talking about what kind of inspired you to make the documentary in the first place, this guy Jamie Kerchick, and you, you've got a lot. You feature a lot of them, in, or a few of them, in in the documentary. There's Jamie Kerchick, of course, and then there's Eli Lake, and you also get into 
to Vice News and their kind of connections to this whole thing. But uh, first, just uh, something comes to mind about Jamie Kerchick. There's this, there's this one quote from him that sticks out in my mind uh, that you include in a very heavy agenda, and that's the one where he's... He, I can't remember which show he's on, but he's sitting there with two other guys, and he's talking about, um, you know, well, why don't we just... Uh, well, does no, does no one remember what what Reagan did? You know, the Reagan doctrine. <laughs> I mean, we should be arming the Mujahideen. What the hell's wrong with that? And... <laughs> <laughs> and um, just uh, well, just comment on that for a second. And Jamie Kerchick I'm, in general. Yeah, I mean, and I and I don't want to give Jamie Kerchick too much credit because I think it was merely coincidental that he sort of, you know, shed light on this think tank for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think he is an interesting example of sort of, you know, one of these more like concern troll. Like, he almost takes on more of a persona of, like, an internet troll, you know, rather than, like, an intelligent concern troll. And he kind of and, looks like one, too. Just kind of <laughs> and the, and the, so when he said that on, on that show, um, part of me almost thinks he was just – he was doing this – doing it almost as a joke, uh, throwing that that out there because um, it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. Until I heard uh, John McCain say pretty much the same thing on, on TV. So – Somehow, some neocon came up with this talking point. I don't. I mean, I don't understand it. It's it's a crazy talking point, but it just really illustrates how far we've gone already. Um, you know, you know, it's just like, you know, you you would think, oh, right after nine eleven, we were bloodthirsty, we were torturing people. You know, there was crazy things happening. But I honestly can't imagine a neocon going on TV suggesting that we fund some radical Islamic force like we did the Mujahideen to do something, you know, like that seems like a bridge too far almost for that era. So it is really surprising that right now this far away from nine 11, we're talking like that or they're talking like that. Um, so that, yeah, no, that quote blew my mind. And, and, uh, and I don't know. I mean, if, I mean, I, I know I'm being obviously I'm kind of being sarcastic when I say he's joking. I mean, I don't think he was joking. I, I just think that it, he's you know, totally shows sincere. Like, yeah, it's yeah. Just the line that he's giving. Yeah, it is. It's it's strange. It's another one of those things where um, it's it's it blows my mind. Yeah, it's hard for me to to even really explain it. Um, you know, and, and it kind of reminds me in a way of some of the Michael Ledeen quotes I put in the movie yeah. where it's like, was this just a candid slip up or is this something that like, you know, they really think, or, you know, it's, it, it's hard to tell. Well, uh, you know, I have to agree. I, there were a number of times I was watching the film and I thought, wow, you know, they are just doubling down on, on everything. They're so brazen, you know, uh, there's one um, one scene where I, I think her name is uh, Katerina or Katrina Vandehovel uh, is talking to Bill Crystal, and she's one of the very few um, pundits who could kind of hold her own in the presence of, of this guy. Uh, yeah, I love her. Yeah, she's great. She's great. And um, but but uh, you know they are so brazen and insistent that their point of view is correct, even in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Uh, you know, it's it's like you said a moment ago, Robbie. It's like you know, wh- where are they coming from? How you know? Do they have no shame? Do they not have the the 
capacity to recognize that they've actually made some horrible, horrible uh, mistakes in their suggestions for foreign policy. Uh, you know, they, there's just this kind of, you know, well, that was in the past, let's just keep going attitude that, that propels the whole machinery of war forward, ever forward. And uh, that was just one of the takeaways from from watching these guys for seven and a half hours. I, I think that <laughs> I think there's something to that comment you made, Robbie, about Kerchik being a troll. I think there is a kind of troll mentality to a lot of these people, and I think that comes down to to psychopathy again. That there's this because if you if you look at the psychology of trolls, there's this this delight in duping people, and this is actually something that they talk about in. in in the psychological field, this thing called duping delight, and psychopaths, like they they love it, like they they enjoy messing with people and they enjoy putting one over on people. So if they tell a lie, you can often see them. They might give a little micro expression of a smile because they enjoy it. And I, I saw a great example of this. Well, I think it is um, from just a few days ago, and this was this guy named Michael Gov um, in <clears throat> in the UK, and he was. I guess he was originally supporting um, like Boris Johnson for, to be the next UKIP leader or something. I don't know which leader. I don't really follow British politics too closely, but he, he basically like stabbed Johnson in the back, and then he said he's going to run for the leadership. And on that day, this was after the Brexit vote, he gave this interview. Um, of course, he's super eloquent, and he, he knows how to speak. And the, the question is, well, when did you decide to do this? And he's adamant. He says, well, no, it was just it was just last night that I was sitting, and I decided that uh, that that I that this was just my what was in my heart to do or something. But as he's saying that it was just last night that I thought of this, uh, he gives this tiny smile on his face, and then he turns it into this strange grimace, like he caught himself smiling. <laughs> and like, it's so obvious that he's lying, and everyone that uh, that knows him like says that he that he that he's wanted this for forever right that this has been a long-term plan of his and he just can't help this little smile coming out of his face when he says he just thought of it the other night when he when he sat down and thought really hard about it and what he really wanted and <laughs> and i think that that's that i think that's probably a big part of of guys especially like kerchik and and maybe even eli lake like when you watch the videos that you've got in the documentary of them like encountering other people and engaging in these kind of semi-debates it's like it's just it's a game that they're playing and they the things that they say are are chosen strategically and specifically just in order to kind of you know win the debate and they they'll they, they get some kind of pleasure out of just poking whatever button that they think they can like they 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 push these emotional triggers and then they're they're happy when they kind of get people in a corner they win they like win that point win that argument even if they've got gotten there by totally duplicitous and like deceptive means and um well, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I mean, a good example of, uh, you mentioned Eli Lake, uh, right after, um, this sort of expose was written on the fact that, that, uh, the foreign policy initiative was, was writing predictive tweets about Liz Wall's re resignation before it happened. And they traced it back to, you know, Jamie Kerchick and also made some connections to his very good friend, Eli Lake, um, they, uh, the, Eli Lake, uh, Jamie Kerchick and Liz Wall, um, and Eli Lake's girlfriend who writes for BuzzFeed, Rosie Gray, posted a picture of them all sitting on the couch together drinking wine while, uh, Eli Lake was wearing a, uh, a bacon, uh, shirt 
and um, that's an Israeli prime minister um, who's actually considered a, a terrorist um, who bombed a, a hotel uh, with a bunch of British soldiers in it and to make it like to do a false flag attack to make it seem like it was um, Palestinian terrorists who were blowing up this hotel. Um, and it's a well-known event. Um, a lot of extremely hard-line Israeli, Israeli right people still support Begin, but he's actually, even in Israel, he's considered like a controversial figure because he did this. And the Eli Lake's wearing his shirt as like a trolling joke, yeah. like in this picture. And he, and it was like, you know, he, I don't even know where he got this shirt from, but, uh, it was almost just kind of like, and I, and you know, even the way Eli Lake looks, I mean, he looks almost like a DC comics villain. <laughs> like he wants to look like he's Lex Luthor. With, you know, maybe with, with his e-cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> maybe at a certain point for these younger conservatives, they thought it was cool and funny to be like contrarian, you know, neocons because those are the people that everybody hated. You know, they almost like got some kind of uh, kick out of being in that role. Mm -hmm. So I think that it makes total sense why some of them would be trolls and they are younger and, and, you know, a lot of more younger people on the internet and politics are more aggressive, a little more confrontational. So it makes sense. Um, you know, but they're not like trolls, like the alt-right, um, are trolls. They're like neocon, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> trolls. They're different, totally different kind. And um, well, just on that same topic with these guys, especially Lake and and Kerchik, this goes back to just to the trolling argument, like comment that I was making just earlier, where they, um, well, and it happened to to your sister Abby, but also there are example other examples in the film where, of course, they bring out the conspiracy theory, um, conspiracy theorist label in arguments and say like oh well that's that's just crazy it's ludicrous you're a conspiracy theorist and y while watching them do it they sound totally sincere like this is this this um like they they really think that conspiracy theorists are these bad things and that they're like they're morally wrong to some extent but then you listen to what they say and they are conspiracy theorists themselves like you talked you earlier in the at the beginning of the show you mentioned about um what was one of the examples you gave about, um, well, this like the them saying that Abby's statement on breaking the set was this Russian false flag, right? They have no problems talking about Russian false flags and putting together these scenarios that are exactly the same as the so-called conspiracy theories that people say about them. And but they they think, oh, it's fine when I do it, but it's wrong when you do it. And you even give an example of uh, Richard Pearl and David Frum in their book, an end to what was it called, an, an end to evil. Yeah, I think it was. And they're talking about like the the Moscow apartment bombings and how this was this Putin false flag. And these guys are conspiracy theorists, and they see conspiracies everywhere. And yet, I mean, what again? It's like this bind that they put you in. It's where you can't argue with them. Because they've got, because they're totally right, and they, I, I, it's just, it's, I don't even know how to think about it because it's just so twisted. That's <laughs> brilliant. Can do. I mean, what they've done almost is they've redefined being a conspiracy theorist as someone who has conspiracies about the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. um, because having conspiracies about the Russian government, the Chinese government, even the North Korean government, you know, saying claiming all the neocons said they were completely behind the hacking of the um, Sony and it was all this big 
you know, like a war, uh, a gesture of war and all this stuff. All those conspiracy theories are fine. But as soon as you start making conspiracy theories about America, um, that's when it becomes, oh, you're a, you know, tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think they've done a really brilliant job of shutting down that debate. And it's not by, you know, truth and honesty or skepticism. It's by just pure rhetorical, um, you know, I don't want to call it magic, but it's it's just it's just rhetorical trickery, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all you have to do is call them on it. I mean, that's the thing is that a lot of journalists, um, you know, in the scene who spar with these neocons, they've all rejected most of all of conspiracy theory culture across the board. You know, even some of the most adversarial, liberal, lefty journalists, you know, don't even touch nine eleven truth. Mm-hmm. So when they go after these neocons, you know. They, they they don't veer into those areas, but I th- I almost feel like if you are if you do have some more knowledge about conspiracy theory culture in the United States, especially like nine eleven, you could see more easily how the neocons are actually conspiracy theorists, yeah. and they and they do it for their own agenda, like not based on any evidence most of the time. Um, so that's I mean I think that just coming from that background a bit for me has given me. Like, you know, I can see when the neocons are using those tactics, um, whereas maybe some of the people who, you know, write about them and analyze neocons more, they don't, they don't have, they don't come from that world as much. So they don't realize that the neocons are, you know, they do sound exactly like some of these, you know, truthers that are just making up stories with, you know, based on nothing. I mean, I, there's a lot of 9-11 truth stuff out there that is fantastic and very well researched and there is some of it that's not and just purely speculative um you know and just sort of designed to make it seem like one country you know one foreign country was behind all the attacks you know there's a whole group of people online who say israel you know was behind the attacks 100 percent, and they sort of everything they do is sort of self-rationalizes that sort of paradigm that they're laying out so and the neocons have done an amazing job of doing that with russia right now it's even gone to the point where there's articles coming out in The Guardian written by sort of quasi-neocons saying that the soccer hooligans, like during the Russian soccer match, were Putin agents. Um, they were like plants by Putin to try to like cause a riot in the UK. So that's the level of conspiracy theory, theorizing that they have like brought to an acceptable level, which if you really think about it, it's scary how similar it is to sort of like 1950s, 60s Cold War propaganda, yeah. you know, that your neighbor could be a communist spy. It's not at that level, really, but it is kind of similar where you'll see articles, serious ones being written, saying that all these trolls defending Russia on message boards are all Putin paid Russian Kremlin agents. Mm-hmm. There's serious articles being written monthly about that. So um, that's not good that journalism has gotten – that uncritical um and that is really it's like turning you know there are some critical elements to sort of like conspiracy theory culture i would argue it's not all you know free association uh you know crazy um soapboxing a lot of it is very well researched stuff that just doesn't become acceptable to the mainstream but what they're doing is the op- you know is the is the former it's the crap kind and they're putting out there to generate an emotional response. They're not putting out there to make people look harder at the evidence or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, in the third part of your documentary, Robbie, you get a little bit into the uh, presidential race. Uh, and 
Uh, some in- interesting things came of that um, that you kind of point out in your film. Um, one of them is, you know, the idea that the, the reality creation uh, is so successful um, by these neocons that uh, when Rand Paul, who was uh, arguably the only uh, Republican candidate who, who sounded half sane, uh, was was voicing criticisms of the, the war in Iraq and the idea of uh, intervention altogether, um, he got absolutely pounded um, by, I guess, the media, so much so that at the end of the day, uh, he ended up having to um, kind of backtrack a little bit and support Ted Cruz, I think it was. And then you have guys like Marco Rubio who are these... Uh, kind of neocon robots uh, who are in the race, who are just kind of repeating uh, these same talking points uh, so mechanically, so automatically. Um, you know, it, it, it really gave you, really gave me some idea as to how powerful this, uh, this neocon groupthink is in, in Washington. And, um, yeah, I wonder if you have any comments about that or, or thoughts. I mean, this election was, um, you know, it's been crazy, weird, unpredictable, scary. Um, but this one in particular, I thought was really interesting because you see the neocon hand, um, doing all these different things. Whereas the, I guess the last presidential election, you know, it was Obama and Romney. And, uh, and in that election, too, two of uh, Romney's main advisors were Robert Kagan and Dan Senor. And foreign policy didn't come up very much during that debate. So in a way, you barely had any sort of you, – you, you, were, you weren't able to see very much of that neocon hand coming into the last election. Um, but now uh, you, you see clearly um, that – there's all these specific talking points being injected into the debate. Uh, one of them is that we need to send ground troops into Syria and in Iraq. We need to basically start a new war uh, in Syria and restart the war in Iraq. And that was something that you saw, uh, you know, many of the candidates saying. Um, and then uh, Dan Senor, Eric Edelman from the Foreign Policy Initiative, Elliot Abrams, uh, and Paul Wolfowitz from the Project for the New American Century, uh, all of them, not all of them together, but sort of that group of people, those core PNAC members, were advising Jeb Bush, um, Rubio, and some of them were also advising uh, Ted Cruz. So of the three main candidates, uh, you really had a full full neocon you know, spread going on. Ted Cruz was sort of a hybrid between neocon and tea party so that was a th- i think a reason why the neocons were not happy that he you know was second for a while you know i don't think they like if he had gotten the nomination i think they might have sort of reluctantly supported him mm-hmm. but they definitely um preferred rubio and jeb no no question about that especially rubio um he was a total robot uh, completely moldable uh to to whatever their whims were and uh, Donald Trump uh, completely ruined their plans. Um, and I think that they, you know, they're still very upset about that. But I also think one of the things I tried to show in my movie is that they also u- are using Trump 
um, as an opportunity to once again rebrand themselves and shift sort of their allegiances. The neocons never really cared about party allegiance. Um, so what they're doing this time is they're sort of shifting over more to the Democrat side, and a lot of them are actually endorsing Hillary Clinton openly against Trump. Um, and as I say sort of at the beginning of Chapter 10, um, I think it's Dan Senor talking to Charlie Rose, is that behind the scenes, the Republicans really, you know, some, not, not just the Republicans, but sort of the neocon hawkish wing of the Republican Party um, decided behind the scenes that it was safer for their whole party um, and their agenda to, to lose the election. Um, and I think that they kind of already decided to do that. They're not supporting Trump. Um, they're not going to be able to stop him from getting the nomination. But to them, Hillary Clinton helps them maintain the status quo more easily. And for the neocons specifically, Hillary Clinton is a neocon. Mm -hmm. I mean, by all, you know, any angle, um, her foreign policy positions are far more hawkish than even Obama's. And you can make the argument that Obama had very neocon policies, especially in the first half of his presidency. Um, I would argue that he's not a neocon, but that he was more just pushed a lot by a lot of different neocons to do certain things. And he just was kind of inexperienced, you know, too inexperienced and naive to know any better. And he was never really that liberal to begin with. Um, it was kind of a perfect combination. But uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, is it's the first time we've had a, a Democrat running against a Republican in the general election where the Democrat is clearly, without question, more hawkish um, and more of a neoconservative. Well, Robbie, you mentioned Rubio being a robot, and I just wanted to uh, to point out for our listeners that the, the documentary isn't totally depressing. I mean, you do a good job of getting some jokes in there and finding the humor in certain situations and uh, even a lot of it visually or even with the music there are some where you just um, you put a piece behind what's going on that kind of changes the changes the way you of the way you're looking at it so it might be some kind of like jolly music or um, like this American patriotic drum um, a martial anthem going on behind there and it's just it's really well done so I, th I think uh I think it's funny too, as well as depressing. But on that on that <laughs> subject of of the like the, the robot comment you made and the jokes, there's something I wanted to ask you about that just really kind of freaked me out in the in the movie and made me go, well, what is going on there? And that um, has to do with a few different incidents. And I'd seen the videos like on YouTube of these things happening, and these are the examples of people kind of inexplicably fainting or having almost what seems like some kind of seizure uh, in public when they're talking. So you've got the example, the, the few that come to mind, and I think there's like four or five that you've got in there, are the, like the guard that, that's, um, that's standing outside, I think it's Ukrainian parliament or something, while Poroshenko's walking by and he kind of like, he's collapsing. And then I think there's one, um, I couldn't tell for sure, but I think it was General Petraeus sitting at uh, sitting at a table with a bunch of people and he's kind of getting yeah. over and yeah, there's yeah. this this other general who's uh who, who's he the who's he the state's the spokesman for but he's he's giving i don't know yeah i know yeah. the one you're talking about where he where he completely faints at the podium yeah, yeah and and his aide is kind of like kind of laughs at first and then they get people to carry him out and he just kind of looks like catatonic <laughs> and there's a few examples of these and it just it, it makes me it reminded me of 
another kind of similar phenomenon that was going on for a while, I think it was a couple of years ago, of news anchors that would just all of a sudden start speaking in gibberish. And it's like they, something, you know, some, I don't know what, what went wrong with them. I think there's a, a psychological ex, explanation or term for it, but where they kind of lose the, the capacity of speech and they just, you can see yeah. them all of a sudden talking nonsense. And it's just, on the one hand, it's funny, but on the other hand, it's just really weird and disturbing to see to see it happening and I'm yeah like wondering what what inspired you to just put all of that in there was it just for fun or or what? well no i mean i think you hit on it it's kind of like it's funny but then it's also i mean watching you know i've i don't think i've only been around maybe like one or two people who have like passed out in front of me and it's a very extremely disturbing experience you know if someone faints in front of you um so but you know based on what's happening in, in the world and sort of in, in, in the situations in those various clips, um, I thought it was really appropriate because it's sort of like there is sort of this building anxiety in the world and especially like, you know, in America and what America is turning into that I felt that it was, uh, it was kind of a way to make it funny, but then also sort of emphasize like just how uh, scary things are getting yeah. um, and how, it's sort of this collective and building anxiety where it's like, you know, I can't say why these people are passing out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if a Pentagon general was passing out based on just what's happening, what the Pentagon's doing. I mean, it's doing crazy things going into some crazy areas that, that cannot turn back from, um, posturing towards Russia again, you know, the only other nuclear superpower in the world. It's quite a scary thing to be doing. So, um, that's, uh, you know, and I think it was, it's more just done for artistic effect, but I, I'm, you know, I think that was kind of the symbolic intention of putting some of those clips in there. Yeah, and I think that's probably, I think it's probably right and like accurate, and that's really what's going on, just in my opinion. And because in that, shortly before the, you show the scene of Petraeus fainting at the table there, um, you have him uh, accepting an award, I think, from Kim Kagan. And he gives this kind of funny speech, but behind the speech, there there's like this kind of, it's almost like there's this hidden meaning going on there where he's saying basically, oh, you know, the Kagans grade my performance on the field daily. And it's he's being really polite and funny about it, but it's almost like he's he's saying on some level, I, I am being totally controlled by these people. And they they pretty much tell me what to do, and I do what they tell me to do. And I'm going to joke about it, but I'm actually kind of telling the truth at the same time. And to think about that, about that kind of pressure and the, the kind of pressures that that are being applied, um, like behind the scenes, the stuff that we don't the, that we don't see in public, behind you know the, the stuff behind the smiling faces and the total total the total um, reasonable um, delivery that, that these guys give. I'm sure that there is a ton of pressure applied behind the scenes in in private and absolutely and not even i mean it can be explicit it can be in the form of blackmail and things like that but it can also just be the pressure of knowing that this is what you have to do because there there may be consequences like the, the kind of unsaid threat but um it's just it, it I, well it's a very heavy agenda it's a very heavy topic and i think that just captures the the mood and the just the overall um well, just mood of the whole situation. Yeah. I mean, just really quickly about, about that clip that you mentioned. Um, 
it's it's literally the only clip while I was making this documentary series that disappeared off the internet while I was making the series. So I had to rely on a Washington Post story that used parts of that speech, uh, that conference um, with General Betrayas. I I mean, I, I think based on what he's saying in that speech, it was so embarrassing <laughs> for everybody involved that they removed it off offline. Um, cause it, cause I didn't have any trouble finding most of these clips. Some of them I didn't even download initially. I would go back a year later and they'd still be online. Um, and I'm not saying my documentary had anything to do with it being removed. I think the Washington Post running the, a story about it, they were so embarrassed, mm-hmm. um, that the Washington Post had gone through and taken some of the, I mean, it was like a two hour long speech dinner, uh, uh, presentation. Um, the Washington Post had gone through and taken some of the most incriminating clips. They were, mortified um and they took it offline but luckily it's that that still remains you know that washington post edit of those clips um i'm really thankful you know for and the washington post is not known for being the most adversarial you know anti-neocon institution so i was really happy that you know even mainstream media organizations like that are still hitting on some of these really i mean in my opinion, just extremely crucial little insights into how this the military-industrial complex really works in this country. Yeah, because while while Kim and Fred Kagan are, what was it, in Afghanistan, basically telling Petraeus what to do, their institute, and the, the one that Kim founded is the Institute for the Study of War, I believe it's called, and they their big donors are all major... Like arms manufacturers, pretty much, right? So, yeah, yeah. So you've got this this nonprofit think tank that's funded by the war industry, telling the generals what to do. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah, when you just well, you describe it that way, it literally sounds like cart like a cartoonish, you know, like movie villain thing to do. It's just such an obvious front uh, for defense companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would never allow, you know, it's illegal, I think, for these defense companies to, like, go over there and consult. So they just use a proxy to do it in the form of this, you know, academic neutral institution when it's everything but. so Right. And, and they're not accountable for anything. Exactly. They don't have any official uh, titles or, or uh, kind of designations. None. Yeah. You know, I was... Um, Harrison mentioned uh, the, the bits of humor and uh, the interesting choice of music uh, in your film, Robbie. And um, it's also, um, your choice of music uh, is also very interesting at times for imparting a kind of visceral uh, disgust and intensity and horror at, uh, at the types of things that we're seeing as well. Um, you know, it reminded me of uh, compositions by uh, the composer uh, Steve Reich, uh, who you know requires a certain um, I don't know a taste for for dissonant music and modern music, um, and I thought that you know as an artistic choice uh, it was very successful um, because the film is as entertaining as it is it it is heavy and um, and unlike I guess a lot of um, media articles and and other things that we read and watch, uh, it imparts a kind of, uh, it's informed by an emotional uh, reaction to this type of information as well. So I guess what I'm wondering is, uh, for you personally, 
um, I guess in some ways the film helped you to, to process and what you were seeing and understanding and learning to understand. Um, have you, have you experienced any kind of, um, transformative or, or any experiences? How would you describe your experience of, of looking at all this material on a personal level? Um, I mean, to be totally honest, it, it was a very depressing and exhausting experience. Um, there were times when I was, when I was making it where, uh, I, you know, I was entertained, you know, especially when I was sort of editing together a lot of my research and finding, you know, bits of humor and stuff like that. And, and writing the music was a very cathartic, you know, it was a, it was definitely an entertaining part of the process. It, um, it helped me get more emotionally glued to the material, but, um, it was honestly a very, uh, it was really, really challenging for me to not get really depressed um, while I was sort of immersing myself in in uh, a lot of these think tank videos and, and neocon speeches. I mean, because once you start watching enough of them, you learn a few things very quickly. Even if you think you know, you know, a lot about the Bush era and, and how bad the neocons were, when you start seeing a lot of these newer neocons and, and just what they've turned into now, you realize that you almost have to concede the fact that man like we're up against a mountain mm-hmm. of what really seems like uns- an unstoppable force you know i think kurt vonnegut in the foreword for slaughterhouse 5 he's talking about a conversation he has with a colleague about writing an anti-war book and his colleague says well why would you want to write an anti-war book that's like writing an anti-glacier book which at the time when he said that, what, glaciers were not in danger of melting around the world. It was kind of like the idea that gla- a glacier was just unstoppable force. You know, why would? You, what's the point of writing something about that? So that's kind of, I had to face all these. I guess, you know, I had to reassess and kind of face myself this idea that I had built up, at least in my mind, a more hopeful attitude about stopping wars and sort of fighting the war machine. You know, working with Abby on her show, doing the podcast, doing some activism with Abby, um, it invigorates the spirit. You know, it make it it gives it gave me purpose, um, in in a sense. And then when I started making this movie, I literally felt like someone had hit the reset button on my level of like the hope that I had built up, and it was just like, oh my god, like this is this is just overwhelming. I mean, that's really the best way to describe it is absolutely overwhelming. And I guess going through all the footage and piecing it together in some small way was a cathartic way to, to, you know, feel like I wasn't as overwhelmed. But at the end of the day, it's still incredibly overwhelming. And, um, I'm, I'm hopeful in some ways, but I definitely, um, uh, it, it was, it was kind of like, a, a you know, a, a year and a half and two or two years of, um, of really, I guess, sacrificing my own emo- emotional well-being to, uh, to, to sort of construct us together. Okay, well, I think we're going to end it there. Um, before we go, Robbie, can you give our listeners the links where they can find your documentary? Yes, uh, if you go to a very heavy agenda.com, uh, you can 
purchase all three parts of the DVD of a very heavy agenda, um, either in a box set form or individually. And you could also watch it online uh, by following the Vimeo links from that uh, same URL. You can stream it or download it. Um, and if you stream and download all three parts together, um, you get a significant price break. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that at first, so I bought them all individually. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank you. <laughs> but uh, thanks again, Robbie. Uh, we had a great time having you on. And again, Absolutely. again, it's a it's a great documentary. So I, I think I think everyone should watch it. It's just there's so much new material. Like if you think you know everything about the neocons and you've seen it all, um, you're wrong because there's there's so much like kind of archival stuff that I, I you know I didn't even know existed before watching this. So um, uh, it's just a great resource and it's well done. And I think that uh, I think all our listeners will we'll get something out of it. So thank you again, Robbie. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Okay. Well, take care. Take care, Robbie. Thank you. Take care, man. America is an enormously destructive country. People around the world love us and many of them dread us because we undo them every day. We undo them in every area of life, whether it's business or economics or whether it's entertainment or sports, just across the board. Creative destruction is our middle name, and we threaten everybody's stability. Some of our professional diplomats is that they always stress the endless desirability of stability. When stability is not what we want, and stability is not what the United States is about, we are the one great revolutionary society in the world, and we want revolution. We don't want stability. We want to bring these people down. Well, we're going to go right into the police state roundup because we're nearing the end of the show. So we have Brent on the line. Brent, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, just fine. Brent. So there's hey, been <laughs> there's been a lot going on since the last roundup that we had. So why don't you just take us right into it, Brent? Uh well, let's see. The most the major stories were this uh this this Alton Sterling shooting that happened in Baton Rouge, uh Louisiana. This was a, uh, a black man who was um, selling CDs outside of a convenience store, and someone got a uh, someone called in 911 and said that he had pulled a gun on them or was waving a gun around, and so the police went to confront him. And um, there was video that was recorded from people that were in the parking lot of this convenience store, and um, in the video you can watch as they take him down to the ground. Um, he bounces off a car and they have him on the ground. Uh, officer pulls a gun and fires a couple shots right into him at point blank range. Um, this sparked a wave of protests in the area, and um, it was the video was very compelling. It was really just unbelievable. Um, and after that, immediately following, there was the shooting in Falcon Heights in uh, Minnesota. And basically, a uh, routine traffic stop turned deadly when a police officer pulled over 
um, this car for what was supposedly a broken taillight or an out taillight. And um, this guy, Philando Castile, is a 32-year-old school t- school cook. Um, he had a, uh, you know, he has concealed weapons permit. He had a weapon on him. Um, and he tells this to um, the officers, and they ask for his identification when he goes to get his identification or the registration from the vehicle. I'm not sure which what it was. Um, they immediately fired four rounds into him. Now, also in the car at the time is his girlfriend, and in the back seat there's his four-year-old, uh, her four-year-old daughter. So, and she starts live streaming uh, immediately after he gets shot. Um, and she's clearly in shock. Um, and like at, in the video, you can see him kind of slumped over in the passenger seat, side seat bleeding. And, um, you know, the video goes on for a bit and eventually she finds out that he passed away and, you know, her reaction is just really, really gripping. Um, these two events kind of like grip the headlines and all across the nation, um, there were protests this week uh, against police violence. Uh, one of those protests was in Dallas, Texas, which turned incredibly violent when a sniper or snipers um, opened fire um, on the police during during the peaceful protest. Um, and the protest itself was very peaceful. You know, it was well organized. There were lots of people um, as the uh, the, the march kind of approached the area of Dealey Plaza, or right around the corner from Dealey Plaza, which in and of itself is kind of interesting. Um, the sniper opens fire and um, hits, I think it was uh, like 10 officers, and five of them ended up dead. Um, the rest of them were injured severely. Um, and this led to, you know, that area of Dallas being placed on lockdown, the sniper uh, fires back and forth with the police. That um, goes on for hours, and then eventually they use a drone to drop a bomb on him, and that's what eventually killed him. Um, so it's just been it's been crazy. There's those are the the big ones. I mean, I also have some other headlines here that really didn't get much play. Um, well, before so, before we go to those, we can, Brent. Yeah, you want to talk about sure. Yeah, just because, I mean, you have this uh, this one-two punch um, with uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, which were just stunning. I mean, uh, you know, Sterling getting killed execution style, um, and this was captured on people's cell phones, and and you can hear them kind of um, just absolutely in 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 disbelief and grief and shock. At, at seeing how quickly uh, this uh, interaction between the cops and, and Sterling turned into them basically executing him on the spot. And, um, and of course, with, uh, with the girlfriend of um, Philando Castile, um, you know, in, in shock, but having the presence of mind to live stream, as you mentioned, her reaction uh, just after the shooting and kind of describing... Uh, what was going on and and the fact that uh, you know this this cop you know tells him to um, pull out his ID and then as he does it uh, you know he mentions that he he is a um, he is authorized to to, to uh, conceal carry a pistol 
And so, like, just the mentioning of that sets this cop off, and he kills him. Uh, and she, you know, she is able to, in that moment, um, again, through the shock, kind of say, okay, this is what just happened. And then I think that the following day, um, she was released from police custody. Why they held her in custody uh, until the wee hours of the morning after the event, as though she had done something wrong, is beyond me. But, um, you know, she came out very strong, uh, as well as the mom of Philando Castile. They both came out very strongly um, about uh, with statements regarding how they, they feel that blacks in, in the U.S. are essentially being hunted. Um, so you have this one-two punch, and were you going to add to that? Yeah, no, um, and I thought what was most interesting about all this was that it all happened on the heels of you know this big scandal with uh, Hillary being interviewed by the FBI. And immediately, like the headlines on all the major, even like CNN was covering this. And, you know, the FBI uh, director, this guy, Kumi, he does get even in his say his little speech where he says we're not prosecuting, basically gives a very damning sort of assessment of what she did. And that was all that the that was all the news, basically, for, you know, 24 to 48 hours after that. And then we have, you know, then Alton Sterling happens in Baton Rouge. And the video from that was just so visceral that you can't, I mean, you basically watch as this man is executed on the street. Mm -hmm. um, and granted, you know, he had a gun, but, you know, that it's not, it's, it's not like he was reaching for it. He wasn't using it. He was on the ground pinned and, and they, they shot right into him point blank range. Um, and you can hear the woman who's recording the cell phone video, you know, scream when it happens. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, uh, the other video from Minnesota is just, is just really, it's, it's really emotional. You watch, you can't help but feel what she's feeling mm -hmm. as she's going through this. And you, you see, you know, um, Philando Castile bleeding out in the seat next to him and, you know, say what you want about these people, but, um, Philando Castile, he was a school cook that was very well liked by everyone. Um, and, you know, he, he had been stopped. I read a separate article that said he had been stopped something like 52 times in like the last, like, like 10 years amassing like over like $7,000 worth of fines. And this is for minor stuff, you know, like traffic light, you know, stop sign, speeding ticket, whatever. Um, and for myself or, you know, anyone else that, that I know that's, that's white that drives a car, you know, to get stopped that much is just unheard of. Nobody can stop like that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, so it's clear that you know that African Americans, especially in America, are are hunted by police. Um, so it's it's not really it's not really that surprising when you see communities around the country having these sort of peaceful protests, saying this needs to stop. We need to we need to do something about this. This is no, we can't just continue to passively plot along and blame the victim or, you know, just, oh, this is the way it is. It's, it can't be the way it is anymore. Right. And then this, this whole situation in Dallas is just, you know, capitalized upon capitalized. The, uh, everyone who's been tooting the horn of this war on police, you know, jumps on it and uses it to reiterate that talking point. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, an article I read in the New York Times about the incident said, you know, it's been the most deadly, deadly event for police since 
Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you for sure, it's not the most deadly event for citizens by, by being killed by police since 9-11. I mean, just watching the headlines, this stuff happens every other day almost. Um, and, you know, the police are so quick to, to, to play victim, you know, to scream, oh, you know, we're doing such a hard job and this is what we do. And, you know, they whine and, and cry about it when, you know, if, if this is like, if this is how they feel, like maybe they should be in another line of work or maybe we should talk about, you know, getting rid of, getting rid of police forces or, or somehow finding an alternative to having a police force altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other stories I was going to bring up was these cops in Florida uh, that were, they were uh, relieved uh, of duty after they had, you know, ties exposed uh, connecting them to the KKK. Well, and this is, this is not a new revelation that, oh my God, there's police and, you know, military personnel that are involved in racist groups. This is something that's been discussed and known for decades. And, you know, when you see black men being executed uh, nearly on, on a daily basis by police, um, you can't help but wonder. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you have these ties, you know, if, if you have somebody you know, that's in the KKK and they get into a department, they get into a position of power, I'm sure they can very easily bring in their buddies. And it brings me back to um, that Lobachevsky quote where, you know, he talks about a, how in a pathocracy, every position of power throughout the hierarchy gets, gets occupied by somebody with some sort of psychological or pathological deviance. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing police that abuse their power, that have these racist or these pathological ideas about how they're supposed to, you know, you know, how they're supposed to patrol people or get in there and, and mess with people. And, and, and that's just what this is. The, these we're reaping the consequences basically. Well, um, and it's very tragic what happened in Dallas. I mean, nobody mm-hmm. in any of the, the peaceful protest movements or any, any protesters that I've talked about has ever advocated violence against the police. So I think that's a point that we should emphasize. Um, and we don't know. The other thing about Dallas that I thought was interesting was that now very, you know, originally there were four suspects. Now that's, it's becoming clear that there was just one shooter. He's the lone crazy yet. The police have three other people in custody. They're not saying who they are or why they're being held. Mm -hmm. And there was, uh, there was a New York times article that quoted, um, I believe it was the police chief saying that the, that there were multiple snipers who were triangulating their shots on the police, and some of the police had been shot in the back, implying that uh, implying that this was a triangulated, coordinated attack. And then, um, like that New York Times article, they edited it. It no longer includes that quote, but the quote is, I mean, it, it was um, quoted and, and reposted on like dozens of other websites, so it's still available when you search for it. But it's really interesting how the story is is changing like that, um, and that there's no information on these other suspects. I mean, why? What might they have to hide about these other suspects? <laughs> yeah, that that's, that's where it, it kind of like, you know, I'll put my tinfoil hat on for a moment, and I'm just thinking, you know, somebody thought that this would be a good opportunity to capitalize on, mm-hmm. you know, in Dallas. Historically, you know, this is where JFK was killed, and anybody who's looked into that realizes that the whole official story stinks. And you know that 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 tacit connection, however, you know, un- untenable it is, it really just it it struck me. You know, it really kind of got me thinking that 
especially with the way that the news cycle changed, um, you know, you know, Hillary is probably thrilled that this went down. It's like nobody's talking about her criminality anymore, at least not on CNN or in the Times. Mm-hmm. Well, we uh, were just talking. We were just talking about this, like after those those two videos came out and before in Dallas, we were sitting around the kitchen table and talking about it, and then it it, it just came up. We were saying, well. You know, when at what point is it going to start happening where there's like a, a concerted attack on the police? You know, where where more cops stop dying? Because if you look at the statistics, uh, I mean, statistically anywhere from like what I don't even know, 500 to 2,000 civilians are killed every year by the police. And when you look at the number of police who are killed, I checked out the statistics a few days ago. And it was something like in 2015, there were something like 60 police officers, I think, I think that were killed in the line of duty. And about 20 to 30 of those were killed by gunshots. Um, like all the other ones were in uh, like car accidents or, or stabbings or, you know, other things like that. But when you look at the number of, of police officers who were shot, it's a, a very relatively low number compared to the number of civilians that are shot and killed. And so... I, I, we were just thinking, well, when's it going to start? And then, then we, uh, yeah, and then, then I th- can't remember if it was that evening. It was. Yeah, <laughs> it happens. And Wow. And it was uh, one of the things we were saying, talking about and wondering about is that um, obviously it doesn't benefit the the anti-police movement like or Black Lives Matter or anyone like that. This kind of violence doesn't benefit anyone like that. And if you look at the history of of these types of of movements or and protest movements, it's always uh, every movement like this is monitored and co-opted and infiltrated. So um, I mean, we don't have the details at this point, but I'm thinking that if if this continues to happen and if we learn more details about the um, like the several of the shootings that have happened over the past few days. I wouldn't be surprised to have a similar uh, scenario that we find with the, um, the FBI's terrorism, um, you know, victories where every terrorist they seem to find has been um, either uh, an FBI informant or groomed by an FBI informant. Um, but I don't know. That's just my conspiracy-minded talk going on there. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look into this guy um, that they killed in Dallas, the sniper, he was, you know, trained in our military. He'd served in Afghanistan, um, I think, 2013 to 2014. Um, He had a small arsenal in his home. And um, it just makes you wonder, you know, like, I, I find it very hard to believe that he was acting alone. I mean, and even, I think, the first first couple of stories that I read said that there were, you know, four people involved, like that number popped up. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, it's kind of funny how now the story is changing and it, it makes you wonder, you know, why the change? <laughs> it's like, are they trying to hide, you know, these other people that were involved that probably have connections to, you know, intelligence organizations in the U.S.? You know, who really planned this event? Like, it doesn't seem like, you know, it's, it's a very, it was, you know, well, very well thought out, very well executed. You know, they picked their spot very well. Um, and it's been used, you know, basically to, to kind of, you know, tar the, uh, the peace movement, as you said. You know, like, it, it makes anybody who criticizes the police immediately look like, you know, some sort of criminal. 
And, um, you know, like the, these type of events, they, they exactly, they don't benefit, you know, people that are critical of the police, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just unbelievable. Well, it looks like we've got a call. I think uh, we've got Thomas on the line. Thomas, did you have something to say about the the situation we're talking about? Yeah, just a couple of short things. Um, yeah, it was funny you were talking about how you guys had discussed, um, you know, when a, when a, you know, the police going to start getting the, the bad end of the stick. Mm-hmm. That thing. I'd thought that myself the night before. In relation to a, an article or video that I'd seen where uh, basically an, an EMS, like a paramedic unit, were, that was rushing someone to the hospital in the States, got pulled over. Uh, the driver was black, I think, and also the uh, the guy who was in charge was black, and the police arrested him and put him in a chokehold um, for not pulling over while they were chasing him. And there was a crowd of people gathered around. And at one point, you could I, I sort of thought, this this could get nasty. And I, and I actually posted it on, on my Facebook page. And I, and I nearly wrote something along the lines of, you know, uh, sooner or later something's going to happen and, and these guys are going to get what they deserve or something like that. And I thought, no, that's not a very clever idea. So I posted hmm. the story and. And then, lo and behold, I woke up the next morning and, and the whole, this whole thing had gone down. Um, so, yeah, you, the, the comment you were making about multiple snipers, it's amazing how the articles that went up on the morning, when you now click on them, they've been completely rewritten. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Dallas police chief, um, David Brown, that's the, when, the quote that you were talking about, um, his actual quote was, we believe that the, these suspects were positioning themselves in a way to triangulate on these officers mm-hmm. from two different perches in, gar- in garages, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then the Washington Post, um, they've actually gone ahead and published an article with, with lone gunman kills five boys in the actual title. But again, I, I hadn't seen... That was the first time I'd seen the article, but if you look at the URL, the URL actually uses the word snipers. Yeah. You know, quote, as, if, as if that was the, as if they'd like published the article in the morning and then gone back and rewritten it, but obviously the URL's the same and it just stinks, you know, and like anyone who's watched, like Brent was referencing how the narrative, I think you were referencing how the narrative changed in uh, JFK's assassination if you watch if you watch evidence of revision the documentary you just get you it you know it gets you it helps you to understand um to pay attention to the to the first stories that come out um and and then just keep paying attention to see how they just subtly start slipping things in there was an article went up on sat on the morning and it was it was still when there were only four officers confirmed dead and um, again, same thing. You, if you click on the uh, article headline in, in sort, it takes you to the original. And you know, within 24 hours, the original article has been completely rewritten. And even though they say they still kind of use they still kind of use the word snipers, 
in the in the first paragraph, but then the whole of the rest of the article is then overkill on the suspect that was well, by the sounds of it, blown up by mm-hmm. uh, you know a device delivered by a robot or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I just wanted to throw them things in. I just think, as you said, it's interesting who these other people are that they've arrested. That's whether they'll just fall into the, you know, uh, they'll just kind of disappear into the rest of the story or what. I don't know. But, yeah. yeah, we'll see. Well, thanks yeah. for sharing Yeah, that. there's a there's a picture I found, or a tweet, actually, from Fox News, of all places, which says that the, uh, the police are reportedly negotiating with a second suspect in the shooting of police officers in Dallas, and the headline is, Police Negotiating with Second Shooter. Negotiating what? You have to wonder. <laughs> but yeah. um, there was another dimension to this that you mentioned, Brent, that um, that a lot of observers think has marked a big kind of escalation or sea change in the way that uh, policing and, and the militarization of police in the U.S. has is, is ramped up. Um, so you mentioned that they actually sent in a robot with a, with a bomb um, yeah. to, to kill, uh, the sniper. And, uh, the statement made about that was, um, and this was also made by Dallas police chief, David Brown, um, that the police saw no other option, but to use our bomb robot and place a device on its extension for it to detonate. Adding, um, that he was deceased as a result of detonating the bomb. Uh, and that was because negotiations broke down so they couldn't they couldn't use tear gas on him they couldn't um i mean i would imagine there are any number of different ways that they could have uh captured him uh he didn't have an automatic weapon he was acting alone um and yet they they send this they send in this uh this robot you know which uh, you refer to as a drone quite uh, appropriately in a way and so there are a lot of observers stating that this was, um, this is a kind of a, a turning point. Uh, and that, you know, if you mess with the police, we're gonna, they're gonna blow you up. Uh, bullets no longer do it. So it's, it's almost as though the war on terror in the form of this little land based drone has, has hit home in a way. Yeah, it sets a wonderful precedent for the people who make those things, doesn't it? And the militarization of the cops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as I know, it's the first time the police have used a drone in order to execute someone. And that's like, <clears throat> that in and of itself is kind of a big deal. You know, now there's this sort of precedent there, the police using robots in order to kill people. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you, you look around the country, you follow news that has to do with, uh, you know, drones being authorized for use, you know, in the U.S. and the controversy that surrounds that. And, you know, this is one of the things that people have been fearing for a long time, is that eventually the police are going to start putting weapons on these things and using them to kill citizens. And here we have an example of that happening. Now, you can argue whether or not it was justified, you know, until the cows come home. But the point is, it's here. It's happening. And, uh you know, it may be the first time, but I highly doubt it will be the last. 
Yeah. Well, um, I just want to share a funny, well, not so funny tweet that I just saw. Um, I'll just read it out. Racist American regime is killing its own people. The international community must act, must act and launch an intervention. Said no human rights act activists ever. Sorry. <laughs> Said no human rights activists ever. <laughs> it's like if the if we got if the if if the United States got what it gives in the international media, I mean that's the headline that you'd be hearing. Racist American oh, yeah. killing its own people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Saddam uh, killing his own people, and Libya with Gaddafi he was killing his own people, and Syria Assad is killing his own people. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, what are we doing? Our police officers are going around killing our own people. That's pretty but, brilliant. You know, we're, it's, it's, this is America. You know, we're we're exempt from any sort of you know rational analysis of our behavior. Um, it's just well, another example of American exceptionalism. That that reminds me of of something that actually comes back to um, Robbie's film. There's a clip in it of John McCain in Kiev during the Euromaidan protests, and of course he's standing on the stage there, you know, giving a speech to to the Ukrainians. And that just seeing that image again was just kind of mind blowing for me because you, if you think about that, and think about, for example, um, a a high profile Russian politician coming to the United States and giving a speech, like at a I don't know a Black Lives Matter rally or even like um, you know a Green Party rally or something like that. And I mean, just think about that actually happening it wouldn't happen it would be totally absurd and people would just be shocked and yet there's john mccain in 2014 in a foreign country rallying the opposition movement against the existing government just like fathom that it's it's insane and doing yeah it really syria yeah it points out to the way that these these psychos behave you know that's you know, when, when anybody else does it, it's, you know, a travesty, it's an outrage, it's a crime, you know, but if they do it, it's totally fine because mm-hmm. it's us. We can do whatever we want. Well, it's Brent, just did, unbelievable. Did you have any other stories you wanted to cover before we call it? Uh, yeah, real quick. Um, I thought this was interesting. The Bahamas actually has issued an official warning to young males traveling to the U.S. Exercise extreme caution near police. So this is the first foreign government that has actually advised its citizens to be very careful around American police. Um, and the exact quote is, exercise extreme caution. Because, <laughs> you know, they might kill you. Um, there was a NYPD officer who shot a unarmed black man in a, in a road rage incident. This was um, in my city in New York. This is in uh, Brooklyn. Um Let's see. NYPD officer Wayne Isaacs at the corner of Atlantic Avenue and Broadway um, basically shot a 37-year-old Delrain Small, who um, I guess there was some sort of um, some sort of road rage interaction between these two cars. Um, Delrain followed the off-duty cop. You know, he was in an unmarked car, so he doesn't know it's a cop. Um, and you know, when he pulled over, he he got out and went over to give him some words and. Um, as soon as he gets right up to the window, this cop puts two bullets in him, and he staggers away and uh, and dies, basically. Um, 
And originally, he had made up some story about how he ripped open the door and started, you know, pummeling him, and he was in fear for his life, and that's why he shot. Well, video evidence shows that as soon as he gets up to the window is when this guy gets shot. So that whole story about him getting punched is absolute bullshit. Hmm. Um, let's see, and I already covered the Florida cops that got kicked out because they were in the KKK. Uh, and then there's just a getting back to the cops and their habit of um, being involved in sex crimes. There was a 24-year-old Todd Tripp, Todd Tripp who was arrested after uh, reportedly um, having uh, pornographic images of a 15-year-old boy. And he was tr- apparently interacting with him over the internet, or maybe it was on, on one of these these apps, I'm not sure. But um, they got a tip from the kid's family's lawyer, and they went to his house and got on his computer, took his phone, and they found uh, a bunch of kitty porn. So another example. Um, and then this is kind of like minor in comparison to everything else we've talked about. But um, there's a beach here in New York, which is very popular. It's called Rees Beach, uh, Jacob Rees. It's in Brooklyn, and it's a popular nude bathing area. Um, And uh, on the 4th of July, it had a very heavy police presence. I mean, it's kind of unofficial. You're not, like, legally supposed to be nude there. But um, this guy was uh, taking a picture. You know, he changed out of his bathing suit because he got all sandy, and had a towel wrapped around his waist, and he was taking a picture. The towel dropped for half a second, and, like, six cops tackled him and dragged him off the beach. Wow. So it's it's getting real. Be careful out there. Jeez. Well, we're past time for today. I think we'll call an end to it there. Um, we'll probably be coming back to, well, we definitely will be coming back to this whole topic, um, and there will probably be news um, for some of these specific stories that we were talking about over the next week or so. So just everyone keep your eyes out, open on the news, and we'll be talking about it again. We'll have Brent back for another Police State Roundup. So thank you, Brent, for sharing those stories with us and your analysis. And thanks to thanks to Thomas for calling in. And thanks, guys. Yeah, take care. And thanks to Robbie for the for sharing about his film. Again, it's available on Vimeo. The links are in the show description. And we'll be back next week. So everyone take care. Be safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.